You may have noticed in the bulletin, uh, Paul tells me that you've been doing this ancient word series, and today's ancient word is confession, as in confession of faith, like Peter um, gave in today's gospel reading. Uh, In today's gospel story, we also hear that Jesus and his disciples were traveling in the region of Caesarea Philippi, established... uh, by Herod the Great's son Philip, Caesarea Philippi was a Roman city, and it was the capital of his domain, which was east of the Jordan River and uh, Galilee, where Jesus grew up. Now, we don't know a lot about Philip, but we do know that his father Herod was a ruthless dictator who would stop at nothing to maintain his position of power as king of Jews, a title given to him by the Roman Empire. Herod went so far as to have one of his wives and two of his sons executed because he thought they were plotting to overthrow him. He was not a nice guy. We do know that Herod's son Philip also had the support of Emperor Augustus and that he stayed in power for 38 years until he died just a few years after Jesus. Now to stay in power for that long in that region, Philip would have had to have been good at two things. First, he would have had to be very consistent in sending money to Rome as tribute, meaning he would have had to collect a lot of taxes from his citizens. And second, Philip would have had to have been skilled enough to squash any type of rebellion or threat to his rule. So when Jesus asks his disciples this question, who do you say that I am? He's very aware of his location at that time. Jesus knows that he and his disciples are near the seat of Philip's power. But they are also at the edge of the Roman Empire's territory, a place that is always on guard against threats to the existing power structure. Sometimes those threats came in the form of military incursions from Rome's rival to the east, the Parthian Empire. Other attacks were the work of Jewish rebels who were unhappy with the occupying Romans or their client rulers like Herod and his sons or the priests in Jerusalem who they viewed as corrupt. For example, more than one rebel leader from this region or from Galilee to the west claimed the title Messiah as he raised up an army and attempted to rid Israel of foreign occupying powers. So... When Peter answers, you are the Christ, or you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Jesus understands that Peter is speaking words of sedition. Every Jew at that time understood that the Messiah was supposed to be God's anointed Jewish king, leader of a holy army that would overthrow foreign rulers and return the kingdom of Israel, God's kingdom, Back to the Jews. Jesus had obvious spiritual power. Jesus was building a movement. Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom of God. Jesus had 12 disciples, one for each tribe of Israel or each priestly household. He looked like a Messiah, talked like the Messiah, 
and acted like the Messiah. But when Peter makes his confession of faith, declaring that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Jesus immediately orders his disciples not to tell anyone else about it. This story is told in Mark, Matthew, and Luke. Most scholars believe that Mark was written before Matthew and Luke, and sometimes Matthew and Luke make additions or changes to Mark's text. In the case of Matthew, as we heard, the author inserts a few lines from Jesus in which he praises Peter for his confession of faith and calls him the rock on which the church will be built. But even though he commends Peter for his faith, he also warns the disciples not to tell anyone else what they believe. At first, when I was studying this passage, I wondered if the reason Jesus didn't want his disciples to share with anyone that he was the Messiah was because he wasn't ready yet to be arrested and killed for sedition. He seemed to know it was coming, but that doesn't mean he was eager to rush into it. I wouldn't be. But then there's this next part of the story where Jesus explains to his disciples that the Messiah would have to suffer and die at the hands of those in power. He doesn't shy away from it. In fact, Mark says he speaks about it plainly. It's the disciples who aren't ready for it. Peter actually pulls him aside and rebukes him, saying, Never, Lord, this will never happen to you. And that's when Jesus turns to Peter and yells, Get behind me, Satan! You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. In a matter of moments, Peter went from rock to stumbling block from keeper of the keys of the kingdom of heaven to Jesus actually calling him Satan. It became clear to Jesus once again that his eager followers had no idea what they were getting themselves into. Yes, they may have believed he was the Messiah, but they were all wrong about what that meant. They thought that being his closest followers meant that they would come into power. That instead of being lowly peasants under Roman occupation, they would finally get to be on the winning team. They would be generals in Jesus' holy army. And soon, when Jesus was victorious, the world would be theirs. So when Jesus tells them to keep quiet about him being the Messiah, and then proceeds to explain to them that instead of conquering their foes, the Son of Man will be tortured and executed, that did not come as welcome news, especially to Peter, who was already dreaming about the power to bind and loose whatever he wanted on earth and in heaven. I'm sure that to some extent, Peter and the other disciples were feeling like Jesus had duped them lured them away from their families and their regular lives only to lead them to slaughter. Now we know that eventually, 11 out of the 12 disciples overcame their initial shock and went on to be apostles of the gospel. They risked their lives and their comfort in order to proclaim Jesus' good news about the kingdom of heaven. Eventually, they grew to have faith not only in Jesus, but also in Jesus' way. It wasn't easy. 
It took time for them to adjust their expectations, to overcome their fear, their desire for security, to actually follow a Messiah who refused to conquer with power, but instead gave himself up to the world in loving sacrifice. But as hard as it was for them, I think it is probably even more difficult for us today. Like Peter, we have no problem making that confession of faith that Jesus is the Messiah. It's a standard part of our liturgy as Christians. But putting our faith in Jesus' way of living, that is an entirely different matter. We start from a much different place in history than those first followers of Jesus. First of all, we're not even thinking about fighting against an occupying empire because we are the empire. We live in the most powerful empire the world has ever seen. And while we don't have a national religion in the United States, more than three quarters of the population claims to be Christian. So for us to confess that Jesus is the Messiah is not really risky at all. It's not like Governor Brandstad is going to execute any of us for treason against the United States just because we claim Jesus as our Lord and Savior. But living into that confession is another story altogether. To put faith in the way of Jesus might actually cost us something. Because even though it's easier for us to echo Peter's confession of faith, it's harder for us to resist the way of this world. We still want to conquer. We still want to win. We still want to own the empire. And now we do. Christians own the empire. We have, in essence, gained the whole world. The question we need to ask is, have we lost our soul? I believe Christians have owned the empire for so long now that too many of us have started to believe the way of empire is the way of Christ. We've almost lost our dis ability to distinguish between the kingdom of Caesar and the kingdom of heaven that Jesus talked about. It's fairly clear to me that even though we Christians make up three-fourths of the population, we haven't done much to shape our nation's behavior into something that more closely resembles the kingdom of God. For example, we in the United States spend more on our military than the next eight highest spending countries combined. Out of our 239 years of existence as a nation, we've been at war for all but 21 of those years. In other words, we've been at war for 93% of our existence. This doesn't sound to me like we care much for Jesus' instructions to love our enemies and to turn the other cheek. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus quotes Isaiah at the inauguration of his ministry. He says, God anointed him to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim that the prisoners would be set free. And yet, this nation of Christians, in this nation of Christians, we have a higher incarceration rate than any other country in the world. We are also one of the most unequal societies. For income equality, the United States is ranked in the 30th percentile, meaning that 70% of the world's nations are more equal than ours. 
We have 5% of the world's population living in our borders, but we consume almost 20% of the world's resources. And even though we are one of the wealthiest countries ever, we are unwilling as a nation to make sure everyone has a bed to sleep in and everyone has enough food to eat. This is not the way of Jesus. This is the way of empire. But the good news is, the Spirit of God was alive and active long before the culture of empire. That Spirit, that same Spirit, which gave Peter and Jesus' other disciples the courage to lose their lives for the sake of the kingdom of God, can also rattle us free from our addiction to empire. God is not going to leave us alone. This God that we learned about through Jesus is the same God who helped Peter overcome his fear. It's the same God who turned Saul the persecutor into Paul the apostle. It is the same God who transformed Moses from an adopted son of the Egyptian empire into the leader of a slave rebellion. And this God, I repeat, is not going to leave us alone. God can use churches like Lovely Lane, everyday people like you and me, to make a huge difference in the world. God can turn a church like this into a counter-cultural community that teaches people how to resist the temptation of empire and instead get better at living the way Jesus taught his followers to live. God can do this. God has already done this again and again throughout history in so many places all around the world, and I bet God is doing that right now in this church in some ways. The question is, will we let God really get to work here? Please pray with me. God of love, You called us to be followers of Jesus, and we answered that call. But we might not have known at the time what we were getting ourselves into. And so we pray for you to show us the way. Open our hearts to the work of your Holy Spirit. Teach us to be generous, loving, sacrificial, and brave. Help us resist the temptations of this world. Help us overcome our fear for comfort and security so that we might lose ourselves in the gospel and do our part every day to make this world of ours look more and more like the kingdom of God. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.